As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. High in the air, Brito back at the wall, adios, pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 185 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. And Andy, there are six giants on the 40-man roster who have a listed weight of 185 pounds. I'm not going to have you guess that. I'm going to have you guess who is the lightest listed player on the Giants active roster right now. Ooh, wow. Um, you know, uh, these things crack me up because for the longest time, Pablo Sandoval was listed as 165 pounds. <laughs> exactly. I think Reyes, Reyes Maranto was listed as like 155. And it's like, hmm, is that, are, are those kilograms? Um, but, uh, and good, by the way, to see Reyes Maranta back in the big leagues. Nice to see Again. that, even if he's in a Dodger uniform. Uh, who's the lightest player on the Giants. I, Steven Duggar looks like a, a, a gust of wind could blow him away, but but he is a little bit taller. Mm, that's a tough one. I'm going to go with uh, Luis Gonzalez. That's pretty. You know, Luis Gonzalez is one of the guys listed at 185, which is the number of this episode. It's Mauricio Dubon. Mauricio Dubon ah. is listed at a sprightly 173. Mike Yastrzemski listed at 178. He looks thicker than that. He looks like a, a stronger guy than that now. Well, I mean, you know, he did just have a bout of COVID, so maybe he lost a little bit of weight. But, uh, you know, it is funny. Uh, sometimes I'll look at some of these guys, and I, I started covering baseball in, you know, a full-time beat in 2000, which, you know, players had different training regimens then. Um, and you, <laughs> you looked around the... Yeah, and, and you looked around the clubhouses, and, and I know that, you know, you, with all the caveats of, well, you know, the media could have done more, and we looked the other way. We didn't really look the other way. I mean, there are a lot of whispers, and you saw how built these guys were. But there are also all of these hagiographic hey articles about, you know, their workout regimens and all the crazy things they were doing. And it was all a cover. We know that now. But but at the time, you know, you, you totally couldn't say the S word because nobody had been sort of outed. Nobody had been, um, had, had sort of coped to it yet before Ken Caminiti. 
And yet I just think back to like what those guys looked like and they were just Mack trucks. And and now <laughs> you're looking at someone like Mike Yastrzemski walks by. And I remember looking at him putting his bat in the bat rack, bat rack the other day thinking, this is kind of like a PGA guy who's like five foot eight and, you know, hits the ball 330 yards off the tee. And you're like, how do they do that? I mean, these guys have, have trained their swings and gotten so much a ground interface and, and leverage and knowing how to put, you know, maximum, uh, I guess, energy into, into contact that uh, that's sort of almost like the new performance enhancer. It's not just having bigger muscles. It's just, you know, making purer contact. And it's pretty remarkable what a lot of guys who aren't very big are able to do to the baseball these days. Because you don't have to bring up Willie Mays was listed at 5'10", 170, right? And one of the greatest baseball players, if not the greatest baseball player of all time. But just growing up, you and I are about the same age. And when you were growing up in the 80s, you had players just look, I'm trying to think of, you know, Willie McGee wasn't huge. You're not thinking Don Mattingly, some monster. Uh, that was just sort of how baseball players were to us. You had when Mark McGuire showed up even before the steroid era, he was a big dude and he was a notable dude. But it was you had players that size. And I think you're kind of getting back to that. I mean, the nutrition and the workout regimens are better. So they are bigger and more muscular. But a guy like Yastrzemski or Dubon, they they look like the players I remember growing up. Yeah. And you, you have those guys like, you know, the Aaron Judges of today were like the Frank Howards from, uh, you know, the 1960s and 70s. You know, you had like those big giant guys and there are a few of them on every team. But for the most part, you're right. The middle infielders, the you know the the guys who were running the bases, you know most of the guys on the team, you know were not those big slugging type of hitters. And you know yeah, maybe we're getting back to that. And and maybe all of the complaints we have about the way the ball is traveling, maybe this is going to funnel us all back to the way baseball was in the '80s. Which you know what I mean, I I don't know if that's going to be popular with fans. I don't know if that's going to be popular with you know kids who are uh, you know latching onto baseball. Uh, but it'd be popular with me because that's that's the game I grew up with. <laughs> one of these players listed at 185, Camilo Duvall. And I want to know if he still weighs 185 after having to face Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado in the ninth inning of Sunday's game. Do you think players like, do you think a closer like Duvall cares about what Goldschmidt or Arenado have done against the Giants over the years? Do you think he has any idea or is it just uh, people on the other side of the TV freaking out? I don't know if he has any idea. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just don't think Camilo Duvall really has probably has been told, oh, hey, this guy you're going to be facing, he made Tim Lincecum in his prime look terrible. Um, you know, I, I just don't think that's part of the scouting report they have. And and Camilo Duvall, nothing really seems to bother him anyway. So, um, but yeah, you talk about like Giants fans who have any grasp of recent history uh, to get through those two hitters to end a ball game. I'm I'm not sure you could pick two scarier ones just in terms of their overall. Um, damage they've done over the years. I think it's so funny that they're both on the Cardinals. I mean, it's just those two hitters specifically, it's like Bagwell and Sheffield being on the same team at the same time back in the, the aughts and, and 90s. It just, they, they just carry such like a, uh, a weighted history into every at bat. And then to have one up there 
with the other one behind him in the ninth inning of a one-run game, it's fun as heck once it's over. But when it's going on, I just can't think of any two hitters who would make Giants fans squirm like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we could look up the, the stats, but um, I mean, Arenado had, what What did he hit, a walk-off inside the park grand slam? Was, was that what he did one time? Or was it a walk-off inside the park three-run homer? I forget. Either way, um, you really couldn't have um, you know a more deflating hit than that. And, and, and Goldschmidt just always seemed to have the Giants number. Um, um, you know, no matter who was on the mound, especially if it was Tim Lincecum. So, um, and and yeah, I think uh, you would always sort of almost fear them more when they'd be slumping going into a series against the Giants because you just knew it was a matter of time before somebody woke them up. And uh, and so I think uh, for the, them both to be in that middle of that lineup, even if, you know, maybe Goldschmidt isn't quite in his prime anymore, uh, Arenado's still a pretty feared hitter. I'll tell you what, the Cardinals entering the series had hit a total of five balls all season that had traveled uh, or estimated to travel 400 plus feet. It was the fewest in Major League Baseball. And wow. and, and that shocked me. And I think, well, that doesn't really track with like the year Arenado is having, you know, with, with, with the, you know, their general success as a team. And it's because they have so much right-handed pull power. And, and that mm. right-handed pull power is is uh, is almost the kind of contact that's that's proven most sort of recession-proof, I guess, uh, during these times. So, um, yeah, kind of, kind of interesting when you look at a team like the Cardinals and a team like the Giants and how ball flight might might be impacting them or not impacting them. It was it's a lot easier to talk about if if the series had gone with the Giants won the first two games and dropped the last two. I think that this podcast would have a different tone. The Giants won the last two. So it's, it was a, a fair result to the series where they, they split a series against a team that has postseason hopes and has been playing pretty well. Uh, the Giants, it's, it's not necessarily panic time anymore for the Giants. It's just, it almost appears like that though, because the Padres really aren't, aren't losing that much and the Dodgers are the freaking Dodgers. Uh, and then you have the Rockies and Diamondbacks actually playing well. It's a weird division, but I don't think it's I feel like the Giants are who we thought they were for better and for worse and mostly for better. They just feel like the Giants that we kind of expected. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a good assessment. I mean, Freddie Freeman, I think, said it the other day. He's kind of being indoctrinated to what it means to be a Dodger. And he's kind of given this gee whiz quote uh, after they win uh, in uh, Wrigley Field. And they outscored the Cubs like, you know, 30 to four or something to win that series. And And Freddie Freeman said, you know, it's kind of amazing that we are where we are when not a lot's gone right. I mean, a lot's gone wrong here. There's a lot of people who haven't really hit any kind of stride yet, and uh, especially offensively. And he's right. And and it is very, very funny, unless you happen to be another team in the National League West. <laughs> very, very funny indeed. <clears throat> uh, you know, let's talk about Buster Posey. It was Buster Posey Day. Uh, the Giants are undefeated since Buster Posey Day. Uh, you were at the ballpark a scale of one to 10. How did the crowd react? I mean, was it uh, as cool as it seems like on TV? Um, you know, it, it was cool. It's one of those things where, you know, when it's a pregame, kind of ceremony you're not sure are people going to arrive late are they going to be in their seats you know did they did they get there on time and for the most part you know I think they were just light of a sellout um, which is no you know um, huge headline because you know we all know that the Giants aren't quite drawing as they used to but um, for the most part I thought people were in their seats and some of the cool moments were you know to hear the, how they received Bruce Bochy you know when he came to the podium 
or uh, Benji Molina, uh, you know, when he had his moment where he asked for a Buster hug and, and kind of brought the house <laughs> down and had Buster sign his jersey like he's, you know, a fan stopping him uh, coming out of the player's parking lot. And, and that kind of it dawned on me in that moment. Hey, wait, this is the guy whose job he took in the big leagues. This is the guy who got him traded off a team that won the World Series. Oh, and by the way, they won the World Series against the team he was traded to. <laughs> and and not only is he not bitter, he's like, I'm this guy's biggest fan. You know, I mean, how how unique is that? I mean, that, that just doesn't happen. It is always stunning to remember the Giants traded a catcher in the middle of 2010 for a few reasons. One, that it worked, that the Giants won the World Series that year without that catcher. Two, you generally don't trade catchers in the middle of the year. You don't like, you like continuity in a pitching staff. You, if you have a plan where you are going to ease in this rookie catcher and have a, a time-sharing arrangement, having two catchers is probably pretty good. You, you have a lot of rest for them. It says something that Buster Posey was that good and everyone could see it, that this was a missing component to the offense, especially that they had no choice. That's just bizarre. And kudos to Brian Sabian for actually saying, okay, this is what we have to do to make this team better. I don't know how many GMs would have done that, how many managers would have been okay with that. It's a wild situation. Yeah. You know, we talk a whole lot about how successful this Giants coaching staff with Gabe Kapler has been at understanding personalities and getting buy-in and, you know, managing people and getting the most out of their abilities. Um, and, and, and really, I think you have to go back to that trade of Benji Molina. That was not necessarily the most advantageous baseball move. I mean, you're trading someone who was still a pretty valuable contributor and was, you know, a pretty good security blanket in case, you know, Buster got hurt or something happened. Uh, but they were so confident in Buster's ability uh, that they were willing to basically operate without that safety net. And I think they knew, hey, look, Benji's going to be a free agent again after this year. Um, you know, we could turn him into, you know, a twice a week catcher. But, you know, I think they were, were doing right by him. You know, he, he's, he re-signed when they didn't expect him to. Um, and he came back. And I think there probably had to be some sort of tacit understanding that, hey, look, you know, if, if I'm not the starting catcher at any point, you know, put me in a situation where I can play um, and, and try to get another contract. And, and I think that they... Uh, that's what they did. Uh, it really was um, a situation where I, I think they they probably knew that you know Benji he's a lot, has a lot of pride, and as much as he was totally totally on board with with Buster, knew exactly what the situation was. Uh, you know when he resigned, uh, I, I still think it would have been hard to ask a player like him to become a backup. So um, you know they they did right by the player to be honest, and they did right by the team, and, and they knew it was Buster's time. So but it still took a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, a gumption, I guess, to, to use a family-friendly word, to, to, to make that trade. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. 
Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Now, you did not grow up a Giants fan, but you did grow up a Cubs fan, so you will understand the language that I'm speaking here. If the Cubs trade their starting catcher to another team and then they go to the World Series and all of a sudden that starting catcher is on that other team and the Cubs are still in the middle of a championship drought, do you have any qualms about that? Do you think that that other catcher is going to hit three home runs in the World Series, four or five home runs? Of course you do, right? Uh, well, that catcher would have been Damon Berryhill, so probably not. Um, or, uh, well, Joe Girardi, you know, soft spot for Joe Girardi. He's a fellow Northwestern guy like me. So um, uh, who else? Uh, uh, Hector Villanueva, who he was a good one. Hector the Meatball, he was a fun one to watch. Uh, Joe Kamak, uh, Cubs catcher with some Bay Area ties. I'm trying to think of other other Cubs catchers. Jody Davis, of course, was a member Rick of the Rona? 84 team. Rick Rona, wow, that's a good pull. How about Rick Wilkins? Now, Rick Wilkins could hit three homers in a game. He had like one year where he hit like 38 homers. I almost think it's like worse if the guy doesn't even have a career home run. You trade him to the other team and then you see him come up in the World Series and you just are expecting him to be Bagwell or Sheffield because of how the Cubs history has gone and how the Giants history had gone in the postseason. I was so sure Benji Molina was going to hit a walk-off inside the park home run. Like that's how sure I was that he was just going to run around the bases and there were going to be alligators taking down center fielders and he was going to win the World Series for the Rangers. I was positive about that. If you were positive that Benji Molina was going to hit an inside the park home run, then then wow, you you see possibilities in your mind that nobody else can see. Uh, and, yeah. And while we're on the subject of David Berryhill, I actually saw him hit a walk-off home run uh, for the Giants. Not a walk-off home run, a walk-off hit for the Giants in 1998, no, 1996-97. And it was one of my very favorite games of all time because, A, Mark McGuire hit his 50th home run uh, for the Cardinals that game. Uh, two, I got a ball. I got a foul ball. Uh, and three, walk-off. So I... As a Giants fan, Damon Berryhill, to me, is an all-time Giants legend. Ooh, you got to tell me the story behind the foul ball now. Uh, someone threw it to me. <laughs> like an like, like usher. Yeah, no, it wasn't that exciting. I, I didn't consider it an official foul ball that, that I caught. I have caught two foul balls as a fan. Um, you have? This, yes, I have. Uh, one of them got me on uh, uh, whatever it was at the time. I don't think it was NBC Sports Bay Area at the time, but it was Comcast uh, Sports Barrier Net, Barrier Net, um, whatever it was. So it made Kruko horse laugh. So we had good seats. It was against the Nationals, I think. It was Vinny Castilla, and he hit a hit a ball. And I, when it was up there, I realized it's coming to me. I have a mitt because I'm a nerd. And as it's coming down, I'm thinking in my head, I have not tried to catch a ball in 15 years. And so what, <laughs> what made Kruko laugh was, he goes, <laughs> I don't know how he caught it because he was looking at the ground as it came down, but that was a good snag. Or it, it was, Oh, nice. They never showed it, but it was like I played it a hundred different times. Uh, I at, ended up ripping it, getting it on YouTube so I could share it on McCovey Chronicles and MLB nuked it. Uh, and so I can't find it. Oh, I don't have the video anymore. So, yeah. And and you held on to both your daughters in one arm at the same time. No, the second the and second balanced fell, a beer on the bridge of your nose. <laughs> the second foul ball was uh, I, I saved my pregnant wife uh, from a concussion or worse. I, I always pretend like I, t- I show my daughter the ball and I 
I say, this was coming at you and you and your mother's womb. I saved your life. And then I, I ham it up and I say, oh, it was coming at a million miles an hour. And I jumped in front of it and saved it with my mouth. You know, I just uh, I, I make it uh, more implausible every time. And it was really Nafi Perez popping up a bunt. It was not. It was not a scary line drive now. <laughs> um, OK, so so I've gotten quite a few foul balls in the press box. Um, there are some press boxes that are way livelier than others, and it's hmm. usually the ones that are behind home plate but angled just a little bit because um, straight back is a little hard to do. And now with the nets being higher, um, it's going to be really rare to get a foul ball in a press box. <laughs> uh, but the ones that are higher up, like Dodger Stadium, you have to strike it just right and you can get it in the press box. And, and I save my laptop from Paul LaDuca one day. Um, <laughs> the liveliest press box in the majors, though, is in Arizona because it's really? just a little bit angled down the first baseline. So right-handed hitters, which are most hitters, uh, if they catch them right, they're going to come right in the press box. And what's scary about it is, you know, there's a point where the ball goes up where it goes over sort of the, the, the ceiling that we have there and it, you lose sight of it. And then it comes back in, and if it's hit with enough force, it's coming in as a line drive. So, um, so yeah, that's those can be kind of scary. So I'm sitting in the second row one day, and I'm covering the Angels in 2000. And uh, Troy Gloss is at the plate. He's a guy who could definitely, you know, put some some fur on it. And Randy Johnson is pitching and throwing 99 miles an hour. So this is a, a bad recipe. And the ball goes up, and I think, oh, that's that's not going to make it here. But it had so much spin on it, and it went out of sight. And by the time it popped back into sight, I bailed out. I did not flip down my laptop screen. And dear listener, this thing could not have been squared contact with my <laughs> laptop screen any more uh, than if you took a protractor and measured it. And, and it locked, uh, knocked out the LCD, and uh, and yeah, it destroyed my laptop. So oh. um, so that that is, and I kept that ball. You better believe it. I did not throw that one down to a kid because I'm like, well, I just lost a $2,000 laptop, so I'm going to keep this $8 ball. Thank you very much. Um, I do have one happy foul ball story to share. I was at Candlestick Park, the only time I caught one as a fan. Doug Glanville for the Cubs was batting, and I think Sean Estes might have been on the mound. And I I had snuck down into the first row of the seats way down the... um, uh, down the right field line. And and there were another set of seats uh, in front of me, like three or four rows, and there was like a big aisleway where like the um, ushers and stuff could come through. So I could lean over the railing, and, and uh, but I wouldn't necessarily be taking a ball out of the field of play. So Glanville hits one, and, I, and it's coming right at me, way popped up high, and I lean as far over the railing as I can, and I snag it in my glove. And uh, couldn't quite believe it. And I do have the tape from the WGN uh, broadcast, and it was nice. Wayne Larravee and Steve Stone, and they, they flash back to me, and uh, I was wearing my Cubs jersey, so uh, Steve Stone says, uh, well, that Cubs fan made a great catch, and he brought his his hat to the game and his glove, and it paid dividends for him. <laughs> so somehow I've got a VHS tape that's probably all messed up with tracking and stuff, and I'd have to find out a VHS player I could actually watch it on again. But I do have video evidence of me catching a foul ball. I want that on YouTube, darn it. That sounds fantastic. Uh, and, and it was hit by someone on the Athletic Podcast Network. We're recording a podcast for the Athletic, and Doug Glanville, my goodness, he is a he is a podcaster for us now. He does, and I, I did talk to him once and I shared that story and he went, uh-huh, that's great. 
<laughs> What's he going to say? So. He's hit a lot of foul balls in his career. Before we move on, I just want to give a shout out uh, to the greatest press box foul ball anticipator of all time, Kerry Crowley. Um, I don't know where, when Kerry Crowley Day is going to be at Oracle Park, but I was always impressed with his uh, technique. He was always ready to flip that laptop down, push his rolly chair away. He was I've never seen another writer as prepared as Kerry. Oh, well, I mean, I, I would I would say that I rival him by now because I've got that uh, sort of, <laughs> you know, I've got the post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, anytime a foul ball's coming my way, uh, don't want to lose another laptop. So, um, yeah, no, it's it, it is the first thing you got to do. First thing you got to do is flip down your laptop screen. Anybody who spent time in press boxes know. That that's the first thing you got to do. Yeah, I I am uh, dumb, and I'm also I have attention issues, and so I'm just assuming one of these days it's going to get me. Uh, I should bring like a dummy laptop to the games because you know what am I doing there? I, I sh- I'm just typing up a story. Usually, I don't need it to run like Civilization Six. I, I should just bring a dummy laptop because I'm eventually going to lose one. So um, there there have been many many good foul ball press box stories over the years. I think one of my favorite ones is. Uh, there was this guy, I, I'll leave names out, but um, there was this guy who I think had been retired for a number of years and still had his credential, but really wasn't working. Uh, just came to the game because he didn't have anything else to do. And also <laughs> because um, he would uh, you know, sneak uh, a plate from the press dining room uh, when the cashier wasn't looking and then like you know, <laughs> basically load up a bowl with enchiladas or whatever they were serving that day so he'd get a free meal out of it. Uh, and, and, and so he's in, in, uh, in the press box and he's got... You know, he's got his feet kicked up. He's got the newspaper open, you know, with you know both hands holding on to it. The whole newspaper's right in front of his face. The game's going on. And he's paying no attention. And a foul ball comes into the press box, goes right through the newspaper, and hits him right in the head. And no. he was fine. He was fine. I can tell the story, and it's a funny story because he was okay. But it, all of us were just like, wow, that is like, <laughs> that, that, that is, that is, horrifying and yet also hilarious at the same time the baseball gods are trying to tell you something man you were yeah. not smoting at this time but you will be smoting in the future yeah yeah that's that's for all the free enchiladas you stole from the from the anaheim angels oh man this was a good tangent but i guess we gotta go back to buster posey day Ugh, talking about buster so buster posey day was a uh success at least it looked like that on the tv my dad was there and he brought up benji molina specifically as one of the highlights uh, of all the speakers that was the one that brought the house down was there anything else that caught your eye was the reveal of brian Wilson. Uh, I do want Brian Wilson and Buster Posey as is, as they were dressed for that ceremony to do some sort of (laughs) buddy cop road movie or something like that. Um, So give us some more impressions about Buster Posey Day. Yeah. uh, Brian Wilson looked like he was going to like stand at the the Aerosmith microphone and and say, check one, two, one, two, sibilance, sibilance, one, two, one, two. Make make sure that there are enough scarves on that microphone stand. Uh, I mean, it it looked like a roadie. It was great. Um, And and not at all surprised. um, but we didn't get to talk to Brian Wilson or, 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 or Barry Bonds. We did get to talk to Buster afterwards. And, and you know, he basically said, look, this was, this was just, I think, was important for me just to say thank you to the fans. Because, uh, and how many times does a person have their, like, retirement celebration day? Oh, and by the way, since you're here, here's your Silver Slugger Award from last year. Can I put this in the <laughs> trunk of your car for you? I mean, that, that just doesn't happen. So um, I, I just think that 
it was it was what Buster had to do, and that's sort of what I wrote in in my story. Is he always knew what was required of him, what what the moment needed, what other people needed, uh, not just what he needed. So um, I, I think he knew that Buster Posey Day was was marketed as Buster Posey Day, but it was really about everybody else and about you know finding some closure and saying thank you. And um, doesn't mean it's the last time we're going to see the guy. I'm sure we're going to see a lot of him. Uh, there is this place called Cooperstown, and uh, there are statues that will be uh, made, and there's a a number that will be retired uh, and all that and he'll be around the organization too a little bit so um, it's not goodbye but it is a way to tie a bow on that career and just you know give fans an opportunity to to cheer him again and for him just to say thanks and that's that's simply what the day was about and it wasn't really made into anything more flowery than that and it even started mostly on time even though Jeremy Affelt was one of the speakers which is pretty darn <laughs> impressive um, I <sighs> One of the things that caught my eye, and maybe you can stop me if I'm being a dork, uh, I was, I'd say, about 10% surprised that Tim Lincecum wasn't there. I know that he is uh, very removed from baseball, I think, intentionally. Uh, I'm just curious if I should be any surprised, 5% surprised, 0% surprised. Is he going to, I know he came back for the Bruce Bochy ceremony. Do you see him popping into Oracle Park once every 10 years? Once every, I don't know. I hope that he's there when they do whatever they're doing. And I don't have it in front of me uh, when it's scheduled or what what the plans are. But this is the 10-year anniversary of the 2012 World Series team. It's kind of funny. It's like, oh, yeah, that was 10 years ago. And and the 2010 <laughs> team was two years ago, uh, 10 years ago, two years ago. They couldn't celebrate that team because of the pandemic. And we had cardboard mm. fans and all that. So um, this is really the first time that they can have like a big... World Series reunion. I hope Timmy's there for that. I mean, he played a huge role in it. He was like a secret weapon out of the bullpen in a lot of ways more meaningful personally for him, maybe uh, to kind of reinvent himself on the fly and turn himself into a secret weapon uh, in 2012 versus what he did in 2010 when he was just dominant. Um, So I I hope he's there. I do think that if Tim Lincecum had shown up for Buster Posey Day, Ah, as hard as this is to say, I really do believe Linscombe would have upstaged him. Mm. I think that he would have gotten even bigger cheers than Buster. And um, and and maybe maybe he knew that. And, and maybe he knew that he wanted that day to be about Buster. And in some way, because he's so beloved and we get such an ovation, he might detract from some of that attention. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the people who meant the most to Buster were there. Matt Cain, uh, Jeremy Affelt, uh, you know, Hunter Pence, of course. Um, you know, the the people who really, he's gone back with John Barr. Um, you know, I, I did text with Brian Sabian and asked, uh, you know, said, hey, you were missed there. And, and, and he had a lot of stuff going on at home with his family. And it was Mother's Day weekend. That's always a tough time to get away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so, you know, it wasn't like Linsicum was the only person who wasn't there. Um, but... Uh, but I, I do hope we see Timmy for some of the World Series celebrations because, honestly, I mean, it might be tough for him. He's got maybe a little bit of social anxiety around a lot of that stuff. But uh, people just love him and they just want to cheer him every chance they get. Yeah. And I want to be very, very, very clear. He does not owe anyone that he doesn't have to be there if he has a, you know, a uh, Magic the Gathering tournament or something. I guess that would be more Hunter Pence. But, you know, and whatever reason he had for not being there 
totally like I don't want to just sort of put out there like, oh, why wasn't he there? No, it's just I'm just curious because he is when you think of Buster Posey, you it's kind of like Tim Litscomb is the other part of that just entirely beloved player from that era. They almost kind of go hand in hand. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. But to me, I always think of these are one in 1A as far as that era. You have other beloved players, whether it's Matt Cain or, or Brandon Crawford or Hunter Pence. I mean, you, you can go on and on, but the one in 1A are Posey and Lincecum to me. Yeah, and maybe 1B would be Bumgarner. And from what mm, I understand, the Giants did the Giants did make every effort to try to get a video message from Bumgarner. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. I, it, I don't think it was because Bumgarner said no or anything like that. I think that just some wires got crossed and, and it, it didn't happen. Uh, which is a shame uh, because I think that would have been a cool moment. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't think anybody is really as linked with Buster uh, in terms of uh, a Giants teammate uh, than Madison Bumgarner. So it's it's too bad we couldn't hear from him in a little video message or something. Um, yeah, kind of still unclear what happened with that. But from what I understand, it's not that Bumgarner said no. So um, either, either way, uh, you know, that's another guy that, you know, whenever he's, he's done, um, playing, I'm sure he'll come back and, and get his flowers too. And I guess, you know, we have, uh, just a, a little bit of time left in the podcast. We probably should, uh, mention the Rockies are coming into town. We haven't seen the Rockies yet. And it's going to be Austin Gomber, the left-hander followed by Antonio Sensatella and Chad Kuehl who's having a really, really nice year. And the Giants, uh, rotation is Rodon Wood and Alex Cobb. You know, all those guys are guys I think you feel good about sending to the mound. So this should be an interesting series. It should be. I am waiting for the other shoe to drop because the Giants went into Coors Field uh, in September of 2021 and just kept beating the Rockies. And I feel like that's the baseball gods are going to send a foul ball through their newspaper, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Right. It's just, it should not happen like that. And so when you have a Rockies team that is doing better than expected. They've lost their last six out of their last seven on the road. So that is pretty darn familiar. But I, I don't trust the Rockies in this series. I can see them being a pain in the keister. I mean, the guy that you can't let beat you right now is CJ Crone. He's leading the NL in home runs and extra base hits and slugging and RBIs and everything else that goes along with that. Um, he's having a great year. And uh uh, and the Rockies have been a lot better than I think people anticipated. You got Trevor Story, who's getting booed in Boston. And meanwhile, you've got CJ Crone and some of the other guys that they committed to who are, who are playing really well. Um, and, and and still, it's not like uh, everything's gone right for them either. Um, but um, but yeah, they, they definitely look like they've got a little more um, than, than we thought they would at this point. So uh, I think we all know that it's not going to be as easy to load up on wins at the bottom of the NL West this year as it was last year. So it's going to be important to see between the Padres and Dodgers and Giants who can play the best against the Rockies and Diamondbacks. That's going to go a long way to deciding uh, playoff position and and who's going to win the division. As of this recording, there is not a team in the NL West that is under 500. Even the Diamondbacks are 15 and 14. You look around the different divisions and you've got the Red Sox in a bad way. The Tigers were supposed to be watchable. They're not. The A's have fallen on hard times. The Nationals have fallen on hard times. The Reds, oh my goodness, I'm eating here. Um, so it's this division is going to be tough and 
if you are going to beat the Padres, if you're going to finish ahead of the Padres, if you're going to even challenge the Dodgers, you have to beat the Rockies at Oracle Park. Yeah. And, you know, next year they're going to go back to a little bit more of a balanced schedule, uh, Mm -hmm. which I think they feel is out of fairness because you've got three teams that are going to go for wild card spots and play very, very different schedules. It's sort of been an unfairness baked in, um, you know, for a long time. But, But for now, for this year, um, you, you still have teams that are going to be going for the same playoff positions that are going to be playing very, very different schedules. And so, you know, there's nothing you can do to control, um, you know, how bad, you know, some of the, the worst teams in the NL Central are. Um, but uh, all you can do is, is is do the best you can with the time that you're given, as the great Gandalf said. So that means <laughs> the Giants need to try to beat the Rockies as many times as they can. All right. This has been episode number 185 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. We will be back on Thursday. We should know what in the heck happened between the Giants and the Rockies. If uh, it didn't turn out well, we'll have a lot to talk about. If it turned out well, well, we'll have a lot to talk about as well. So thanks for listening. We'll see you then.